Hey, cool kids, you're back with the Beat Motel podcast. I'm here with Dr. What do you want to be called this month? I'm Dr. Patio Rage. This Dr. Patio Rage. This official, week, actually. Yeah, this, this, this month, this year, it's my official title. Okay, good to, really. get, good to get such a professional start to the podcast, as ever. <laughs> right, we're on YouTube as well. Anyone's listening to this on their podcast platform, you can also watch us, and we've made no effort with our appearance. Well, actually, I can only speak for myself. My name, by the way, is Andrew. Um, the the sign for the studio hasn't turned up yet, so I'm still using the the uh, the cardboard one on on an old tripod. I think it suits us quite a lot. It's it's quite nice, I think. But we'll stop talking about that. Um, I have a, a a special little something I want to add to the podcast, and I'm going to explain the provenance of it first. I'm going to explain why I'm adding this to the podcast. I discovered a podcast recently called The Rock Geeks. And it's a couple of northern British guys who go into phenomenal detail about over particular albums. So at the moment, I'm listening to what well, is two episodes, which is about four and a half hours long, going into Pinkerton by Weezer in incredible detail. And first of all, as a homage to them, I'm going to explain that I normally record, or I have been recording these episodes when I'm in the studio on a Studio Electronics SE2200, no, two, SE2000. And I have recently upgraded to a Shure, a Shure SM7B, but I haven't got the preamp for it yet, so I can't use it. So I've gone for the Aston Origin, British-made mic, which is a uh, really cool. I can't tell if you've frozen or you've just completely <laughs> lost interest in life listening to that amount of detail. Um yeah, so on their podcast, they have a disclaimer at the start, and it, it says something along the lines of, actually, I'm not going to say what it is. I'll put a link to their podcast because I'm I'm quite fascinated by the depths they go into for albums. They've also done Metallica, Iron Maiden, and the new episode is Manic Street Preachers, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it, but that's enough of an advert for them. I've made a disclaimer for the Beat Motel podcast. Would you like oh, to hear it? Yes. I think it's quite I think it's quite on brand. <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna play this. Unless you like seriously object, we're gonna play this at the start of each episode from now on. I oh, fucking go. go for it. <laughs> You're listening to the Beat Motel Zine podcast, and we need to warn you that we use words like sh bollocks, scrotics, fuck, anarcho syndicalist, and c and we don't normally beat those words out. Apart from the word because we're not total animals. Now, we know as well as you that your children can hear these words on any street in Britain, possibly any street anywhere in the world. But we also appreciate that you may not want to invite these words into your home if you have children or sensitive pets nearby whilst listening to this podcast. So listener discretion is advised. That being said, if your children aren't allergic to hearing words like shit, buttocks or hind penis, they might learn something from listening to this podcast, although probably not because the quality of our educational content is quite poor. So there you go, fuckers, buckle in and let's get started. <laughs> I was quite, quite like pleased you to miss the last fucker. I didn't miss it. No, the last, the last one, it's, it's, got, it's got a whistle. I know it's definitely not there because I snipped them out in Ableton. So there, there are no swear words. In it's that. quite clear. I mean, it's quite clear what the swear words are, but it's also uh, that one just sounds like you haven't snipped enough, frankly. <laughs> I, might, I might have left a little bit to it. I was particularly pleased with, with two phrases in there, which, which I thought 
one of the well hind penis <laughs> i just quite like because it doesn't make any sense but anarcho syndicalist i liked <laughs> no i beeped out interestingly i beeped out almost the whole of anarcho and a bit of syndicalist but it's still <laughs> weirdly you put a bass note under it and it's still really clear that it's a narco syndicalist <laughs> <laughs> i just thought that was funny anyway so that's that's in honor of the rock geeks and and will forever be there now um probably apart nice. from when i do live episodes because i record those differently and i'm not really sure how to insert audio like that into them right dr page dr patio dr ratio um we we are talking about sort of talking about educational material this week aren't we we are what is the theme this week books oh, i like books Books about books or biographies of musicians or bands. Um, we, we, we're doing this very much on ones that we've read fairly recently because otherwise we're just not going to remember. Well, what on um, earth we're one of about. them, I mean, uh, fairly recently is a thing for me. But yeah, I mean, ones that left a mark with me. It's almost say. like we have production meetings. I'm not going to say if we do or not, because I'm not sure whether that would make make the listener experience any better not, or worse. It's not punk, though, is it? Production meetings. <laughs> Production meetings aren't punk. No. Right. Now, anyone who's listened to this podcast before will know that we have Riff of the Week. And I'm going to start with your Riff of the Week, Sam. Do you want to introduce it or do you want to say what it is afterwards? Let's have a listen. I'll be honest, when I first heard the beginning of that, I thought, oh, sweet Jesus, this is a, a Sam's <laughs> forbidden music choice. But then, actually, by the end of that little short clip, I really like it. So who is that? That's a guy called Tom Zé, who is a Brazilian uh, avant-garde musician who sort of, he came to sort of, uh, came up with the uh, whole, well, he was part of the whole Tropicana movement in the 60s. Uh, then he sort of, he's sort of known as the, Captain Beefheart, the Frank Zappa of Brazil. Wow. And so what, what year is that? This is 2005. And it's from an album called Estudando o Pagode, um, which is his... It, it's like... Um, he, he's done a, a few of these albums, one or two of them at least, where he sort of breaks down a, a style of music. And I just... That riff, when the... You know, just... It's such a cool riff, and it it could be any anything. It's like it's got this Brazilian rhythm and sort of these noises over the top, but it's also got, I think, a voice thing that is a reference to like funkadelic type stuff and uh, Parliament type stuff. But also, then the riff comes in. It's fucking heavy. It's meaty, it's, isn't it? I, yeah. I like that. That that that's quite a fast swing in my brain between this hurts and this is cool. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like jumping in a cold pond or something yeah then... but you know you can imagine that riff being played by i guess any number of sort of rock bands it's good just great i'm, go I'm gonna look up more because that whole I album like... that i mean that album too, he, he did that album um from 2005 is so far the like the 
the heaviest thing I've heard him do. It's all great. It's all great. It's such a good album. Love it. And he was sort of rediscovered by, uh, what's he called? Um, The Talking Heads guy. Ed Byrne? Uh, Not Ed Byrne. He's a British comedian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, David Byrne? Yeah, that's I'll him. just start running through all, all anglicised Christian yes, names until we get David there. David Byrne, and yeah, and his stuff got started getting reproduced, so he sort of had a blossoming in the last sort of 20, 30 years. Um, yeah, I just... Yeah, cool as shit. Right, now, anyone who hasn't listened to this podcast before, I have to explain, we can only play 30 seconds of any track, otherwise PRS will, I don't know, come round our house and make our milk go sour or something. So my choice like Sam's, it's only going to be 30 seconds. And we're a broad church on Beat Motel podcast, but we do lean towards the heavy, as you'll uh, as you'll know if you've listened to us before and as you will come to love, I hope, as you listen to more episodes. So here's my choice. I'm going to tell you who it is because I don't think it's going to spoil anything if I do. It's Kanonenfieber. <laughs> it's a German band. Kanonenfieber. Kanonenfieber. And the song is... Uh, <laughs> now... I'm I'm reading it as Dickie Bertha, and I'm sure it's not Dickie Bertha, but it's spelt D-I-K-E-B-E-R-T-H-A, two different words, Dyke Bertha. My German is not good. I, I got a G for German, which whilst was alphabetically pleasing in GCSE, um, it doesn't mean I, I can actually speak any German. But have you heard of this band? This is the one you sent me on WhatsApp. Oh, yes, yeah, so you will have heard it because I probably told you about it. Anyway, oh, I'm, I'm going pl- to try this. Try this. Hold on. You're going to do uh, some on-the-spot research. You're going to be like the Carol Vorderman of the, uh, in the book corner on Countdown. I prefer... It wasn't Carol think... Vorderman in the book corner, was it? No, Sue something, who I like a lot more than oh, Carol Oh, Sue Den. Her, her podcast that she does with uh, Tory jumper wearer, Giles Brandreth, is, is really good. Yeah, she's... Uh... Jesus. Nothing rhymes with purple. But this is how Google Translate would... Uh... I think I know what it is. I think it's... Can I spoil it? I think it's the big cannon or something, isn't it? Did you catch that? No, say it again. Nope. Nope. Doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't root through like that. Oh, are you trying to get it so that it, it will actually say it out loud? Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's listen Fuck to that. that really. <laughs> Right, so let's play a canone of this band. It's two for one, three for one, four for one. There's plenty of riffs in there, isn't there? What yeah, do you think of that, good. Sam? Uh, it was more punk than I was expecting it. They sort of had a almost D-beat aspect to some of it. Yeah, it's like D-beat sludgy, black death metal. Yeah, sludgy <laughs> 80s hardcore sort of aspect to it. Cool, good, good sound. Thing. I like the guitar sounds. Thing. That the first, that's their first album. Um, I'm, I looked them up because they're supporting Baktushka, who I'm going to see at, in Tuffnell Park in London in a oh, not long actually in a few weeks time the right batushka because there are many, as you know there are many batushkas the wrong ones the, the wrong one is playing 
Helsinki about the same time. I've got to say, the wrong ones sound pretty good as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> so whatever your flavour of Baktushka, I'm sure the, uh, the band themselves have strong preferences. Right, so that's Riff of the Week done and dusted for another week. That was very enjoyable. Thank you for exposing yourself um, to, to new music. Um, wasn't sure how the end of that sentence was going to go then. <laughs> Wandered around a bit. Right, let's get on. To... Exposing yourself. It's a, it's <laughs> a good meme, was, Andrew. It's a good meme. I was in a um, I was in a an FSB meeting yesterday just to talk off music topics. So Federation Small Businesses Network meeting online, and everyone introduced themselves, and you get like twenty seconds to say what you do. And everyone's always like, "I am an accountant. I will do your VAT." it's just the most boring thing so i always try and think something interesting and i've said things like seo which is what i do is a bit like the film never ending story and google's like the big hairy dog thing and i can usually sort of keep that thing going and people remember it because it's more interesting than saying what i actually do so yesterday seo is about exposing yourself to random passers-by i said we my, I mentioned my company name, which I'm not going to mention on the podcast. I said, uh, we help you expose yourselves legally, <laughs> which, I, which I thought was really funny. It bombed. It absolutely bombed. It did not go down well at all. And um, I wasn't embarrassed because I have no shame, but <laughs> i just like to share that with you. <laughs> right. So let's get on to the books. So what happens next, dear listener, is Sam and I have four choices each. Um, and we're going to back up, uh, augment, decorate, um, improve. I'm running out of words. Our choices by playing a song by what the band done, what the biography thing is, right? So would you like to introduce your first choice, Sam? It is uh, Little Richard, the king and queen of rock and roll. Um, there's no two ways about it. And the song is called, I just need to find the notes. Sorry, very professional. Spread and natter, what's the matter? And. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I didn't realize there was more. Go, 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 go. There's several quite strong little Richard themes in there. There's the uh, hammering piano. There's the word Lucille, <laughs> um, and yeah, who wouldn't like that? What's not What's not to like? Well, so I, uh, I just wanted to talk about that track a little bit. I, it dawned on me when I was making this list because I this book was recommended to me uh, from a friend of mine, um, and it's called "The Life and Times of Little Richard, the Quasar of Rock" by Charles uh, by. Yeah, Charles White. Um, and um, Looking good. And <laughs> the, the, the track, it dawned on me, you know, I was watching the document. There's recently been a documentary about Little Richard um, being put out to much acclaim. And um, it dawned on me that I've only really listened to, and I think most people only really listen to the early stuff before he first decided that rock and roll was... Um, 
was Satanism and became part of the church. And then this is an album. So that's from his rings into the harbor, didn't he? Yeah, that album was from that track is from 1970s, where he sort of made a comeback. It was his first sort of attempt to make a comeback. And it dawned on me that a man who wrote all those early amazing songs, um, you know, he can write a tune. So why wouldn't some of his later material be great? And the real thing is a great album. It's like, it's much more soul than uh, a lot of his early rock and roll stuff, but it's still, it's just still so good. So this album is, this book, yeah, is, I would say, eye-popping. Eye-popping, wow. Yeah, the stories that are in here are pretty fucking out there. Um, He, real Richard, you know, he he, is a Southern American and grew up in a time of abject poverty down there in the South. And what he came from and what he became are amazing but also if for anybody who's interested in you know um the identity crisis of little richard i think there's a lot of explanation in the book but the stories are amazing the story about him losing his virginity at the age of 13 is I, i'm not going to go into it here because it's graphic and nasty is so is this an autobiography no, it, it's extensive interviews with him and other people. Um, I quite, I quite like that angle, like the oral history thing. There's a brilliant book yeah. called "Please Kill Me" by Legs, oh, that's someone or other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About the, Legs the, McNeil. That's it about the New York punk scene, late '60s, early '70s. That that's, I think, it's a really good way of getting across the feeling of 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 a scene or or anything at all. So, how, yeah. how, so the book was recommended to you. So, what you said it was eye popping, but did it fundamentally change the way you you viewed Little Richard? Yes, um, I think it made him much more complex and much more understandable person rather than that's. Sorry, I forgot we're on YouTube here. I'm just like scratching the inside of my ear. It was that distracting? Sound. What came out? What came out? What was interesting? Just like crunchy stuff. Oh, lovely! But... <laughs> Sorry, that's <was> terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did, it did fundamentally change the way I look at him um, because it turned him into a much more complex but understandable character, made of much more human. And uh, the injustices that I think he experienced as a rock and roller who, who, you know, he more than anybody, he more than anybody wrote the songbook of rock, early rock and roll. Mm. Because whilst little, little um, whilst Chuck Berry, it was also the most astonishing sort of hit rate. He also had an aspect where he did the same thing every song. Well, Little Richard did not do the same thing every song. He mm. actually sort of wrote, you know, sort of unique pieces for every song. They're distinct. And the fact that you get him writing like a soul album in the nineteen early 19, late 60s, early 1970s. And also uh, just the greatest story about it is, uh, not the greatest story, but the one story I sort of uh, that I can sort of retell to a very bad in a very bad way is when he was playing Woodstock. He played Woodstock. I didn't That's, know that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but he played one song because he played. He saw. He watched Janis Joplin, and he said the only person he's never been able to follow is Janis Joplin. She was wow. too much. 
And uh, he watched Janis Joplin and went, I can't follow this. I can't, I mean, I'm not. And so he's just, he played. <laughs> you can hear that banging, can't yeah. you? I, I, somebody in the next room, uh, to quote Paul Simon, so, someone in the next room trying to, trying to win a prize. Uh, and, uh, and so he just sort of, he gets all the house lights killed and he gets up on his piano and he gets the song. And it's like one of his big songs, you know, Good Golly Miss Molly or... Um, and one of those, and he just plays one song, goes for it, just everything hell for leather, and just leaves the stage. It's the only way he could think of topping Janis uh, Joplin. And, it's amazing. You know, just kill everybody and and leave. What, what's what I find really interesting about people like Little Richard is that the eight. How old was he when he when he first emerged? So it must have been what fifty five, fifty six. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was he was he young? Because not not everyone was like the big bobber and and some of the other people were kind of they've been doing the rounds for a good long time and kind of jumped on the back of rock and roll. But he would have been he would have been in his young. early twenties. So early twenties, nineteen fifty five, Woodstock, yeah. nineteen sixty nine. So only mid thirties. Not exactly kind of like a heritage act. Not like no. kind of the Rolling Stones kind of doing their two hundredth tour or whatever. No, but then you, you look at the Rolling Stones, and when people when they were turning forty, people were saying, Are you, "Really? Are you not embarrassed?" <laughs> you only need one band who's older than you carrying on to make it feel okay. <laughs> I, I believe that. I believe that even kind of on a on a on a local level, if, if there's people in bands older than I am, then it's a okay, and there always will be now because the uh, the perception of youth and, and when we should bail out is, is just gone. What at what point? Uh, yeah, at what point do you start playing in like a covers band, um, or you I'm sit down? I'm not sure I'm ever going to do that. It, <laughs> when I was younger, I would have said, I would have said in conversation that playing in this covers band means that you've given up on life. I don't believe that now. I've got friends who who do it very very well, and I'm basically just not a teenage twat anymore. I'm now a middle aged twat. Um, but now I wouldn't play in a covers band because I can't learn other people's songs. It's really difficult. I can't, you know, I, I play guitar and I play bass. I'm just crap at learning other people's stuff. I can write stuff and I can be part of the band process. But my my, my mate Tom has a repertoire that he can stand up and do just him and acoustic guitar of around 300 songs that he can just recall like that. And given, given stuff on an iPad, he can do anything else that he wants. I think that is phenomenal. And I, I feel bad about my teenage self thinking that was shit or lame or somehow because I think it's probably more work than being in an originals band. There was a um, I was listening to uh, Out for Lunch, which is a podcast with uh, now hosted by um, Aid Edmondson. Um, oh Gene, wow! Yeah, and uh, he was talking to Chrissy Hind, and she came up with it. She had a great quote of his. I can't remember the exact thing, but it was something like. Um, Something along the lines of you wrote, you know, Good Golly Miss Molly when you were 20. I can play it when I was 17. <laughs> and there's, that, there's, that... A, there's, a, there's an interesting aspect where you have people on the internet, a lot of YouTube people playing, you know, trying to get the exact thing that they're, they're copying, the exact. And to me, learning how to play other people's music is a way of learning how to, you know, learning basically the, the tools of the trade in a way. It's you're learning how to play someone's uh, how 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 stuff is written, but 
there's something, there's a big difference between getting how something has been written and getting the exact same thing. And there's this aspect of, you know, sort of like people going, oh, they're playing it better than those people. It's like, yeah, but they didn't write it though, did they? No, I, I don't get the point. I am with you that that learning other stuff is a good way of, for me, picking up technique. I learned, um, you're not going to be able to hear it probably, but I learned... Um, Oh, shit. <laughs> I learned Good Riddance Time of Your Life by Green Day a couple of days ago on guitar. Uh, but that guitar I just picked up is out of tune. Yeah, it's a good way of learning. But why improve? Albums are a snapshot of a time and a place and a, a thing. They're, they're, not, they're not a record of perfection, no, which is no. why a lot of bands are so different live. I mean, <laughs> Bob Dylan now, people struggle to recognize the songs that he's playing because he's been doing so many different versions for 50 years now that people are like, did he play his hits? And like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, good, good point. Right. None of that was anything to do with little Richard. So let's move on to my first choice. (laughs) Now, my first choice is I developed into music properly in the nineties. So there's been a whole rash of books out from the nineties. So I've been, I've been making my way through them recently. And I'm going to play the, the, the track and then I'll explain what it is. There were bars on the street of every shape and size. The motor picked you down from the thumb. Assassins on the corner tried to throw you a line. Your daddy mouth coming to telephone. That's a lie. So that was uh, The Auteurs with a song called Lenny Valentino, which I, th- I think is, is a cracking song. As it goes on, it's got so many brilliant bits and it's it's cello-heavy mid-90s indie. Um, it's got like a is... scar feel to the drums. I genuinely the think they're, they're a brilliant band. I think Luke Haynes is a very, very good songwriter. Their first album is is just wonderful. And it was so... It was so opposite to absolutely everything else at the time. This is when, like the the lad ladette band culture was starting to develop, and they they kind of got their break supporting Suede on Suede's first tour. Mm. Um, but at the time, they're just very very different. They're, it kind of amazed me that they they did so well. The music's good, but they just didn't fit. They didn't fit at all. Now Luke Haynes' book, which is called Bad Vibes, is quite brutally honest by his own admission he he doesn't he doesn't think he's a very nice person and that's certainly backed up (laughs) by by several points in the book he is quite unkind about a lot of people but it gets to the stage where when as you're reading it you never quite side with him but you start to sort of sympathize with him more than anything else because as much as he's brutal about other people in bands, he's also brutal about himself. And he, by his own admission, has made his own life very difficult by being the way he is, but it's actually quite a funny book. I'll give you an example. He, he uh, com- He's complaining about 
about Oasis, the rise of Oasis, and he, he always refuses to use the word Britpop or like talk about that as a thing because it, it wasn't a thing. And he, the, the book ends with him complaining about Oasis. And then he says, but the thing is, Noel Gallagher lives around the corner from me. And every time I bump into him, he's like, all right, mate. And then we have a lovely chat. He said, it's really hard to think someone's a sunt when every time you speak to them, you really enjoy the conversation. So it's got this sort of like lovely, lovely knowingness about that. He knows he's being a bit idiotic about it, but it's an engaging read. It, it's, I think the mark of a good, the mark of a good autobiography for anyone who's been in the band is if you don't like the band or have never heard of the band, but the book is still engaging, then it's a good autobiography. And one of my later choices is, is that very thing. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing of like, I, I found this, list quite hard to put together because I don't think there's a lot of very well-written books actually about rock and roll. It's so subjective, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I recently read uh, Sellout by Dan Ozzy, who was the guy who also wrote um, co-wrote Laura Jane Grace's book. And I've just found both of them pretty... He's He's a very good interviewer, but he is his analysis is very thin and his placing is very thin and his sort of placing, I don't know, what do you mean by that? He, he doesn't contextualize well. Um, okay. And um, yeah, I just sort of found his, both, both of those books, frankly, quite dissatisfying to read um, ultimately. Um, I don't want to be nasty about him. I think he's done a very important thing in cataloging those moments, but I, I don't think I just I, I just think the books are quite thin. Um, it, it, mu- it must be difficult because there there's there's several angles. If somebody's writing an autobiography, then they're likely to be kind about themselves and not focus on some of the more negative things, apart from Luke Haynes with bad vibes which is one of the reasons it's so refreshing. But also, the what does, what does the audience want? Because a book I haven't included here is um, Graham Coxon's book, mm. because I haven't read it. But I've spoken to people who have, and they said it just kind of, it was interesting, but it just kind of bummed them out a bit. See, I always wonder what the motivation is of the writer. Luke Haynes, I think he wants to entertain. I think that, mm. that's all there is. But someone like Laura Jane Grace has several themes that are consistent through all through all her work that i'm sure it forms a part of that but i mean what do you want what i'll tell you what i want first what i want from reading a book by someone who i've looked up to who's in a band i like i'm generally only really interested in how they went from nothing at all to being the musician i mean i want the nuts and bolts i want how many gigs did you do i want to what contacts did you make how did you record your demos and Another book I didn't choose is a, a book by Brett Anderson and from Suede. And he split it into two parts. The first part is <laughs> is kind of basically birth to teenage years. And the second part is teenage years to most of Suede. And I, I found that really interesting. And that there's some quite shocking things in there that, that I was quite astonished by. But he, he does that. He goes into all the detail. The Luke Haynes one he kind of does a little bit. So that's what I want from books like this, but I'm very aware that I'm probably in quite a minority. I mean, yeah, it's a good question. I don't really know what I want from books like this, but certainly like, um, 
I've got the Joe Strummer one written by uh, Chris uh, Salowitz, and I started rereading it uh, a little bit of it. And he keeps telling you that Joe Strummer's funny. I don't need to know that Joe Strummer's funny. I can make my own fucking analysis of it. <laughs> Sorry, that part of that book really winds me up. Oh, Joe Strummer's funny. So fucking what? You know, but he then goes through a lot of a lot of work to contextualize uh, Joe Strummer from his middle class, you know, parents to you know what he was doing in the squats before he joined the Clash and what the clash went through and he 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 really you know that book has aspects that really annoy me um but that annoys me about music journalism in general you read a review and go oh it's great that doesn't tell me anything about the uh the you know what i'm actually tell me about what it actually contained rather than telling me about what it makes you feel um and uh, I, I guess that aspect of, like, I think the Charles Mingus one, which was, is called Beneath the, the Underdog, is fascinating because he's basically an angry man and he could he knows he could write and do a much better job, but he's just, just angry throughout the entire thing and he's deciding to have a fucking go at everybody and everything um, because he was a pioneering black musician who wanted to be taken seriously and because he was black no one would take him seriously and also because he was a jazz musician no one would take him seriously for the most part until um, later in his life and it's but it's stuff i mean yeah but i what i distinctly want from books of this i don't know but i i i want i want more more understanding of the world that people come from i guess is interesting yeah. to me yeah, I, I, I'm I'm with you there. What what I tend to enjoy less is the sensationalism in some books, and it's yeah. kind of interesting in a gory kind of way. So, Hammer of the Gods, I think, was the Led Zeppelin book I read a while ago, and it's it's not that old. It, it's not Hammer of the Gods. Oh, I can't bloody remember. There's two really famous Zeppelin books. One of them's written by one of their a guy who was essentially one of their hired thugs and roadies. And there's another one which is pieced together from interviews and bits, but sort of goes out off into these realms of fantasy about what might have happened behind closed doors. And I, I kind of got bored by it. I know that Jimmy Page is probably or probably wasn't the nicest person in rock and roll at the time, because who doesn't know that? I know he was a walking encyclopedia of STDs, you know. <laughs> That that's that's all a given. I know that Robert Plant was was all right. I know that Bonzo, you know, John Bonham was essentially a nice person who was always horribly homesick and dealt with it in very negative ways. I know those things. What I want to know is those things that you said, you know, where they where they came from. I wanted to know why how John Paul Jones fitted into the band. Because Jimmy Page, from a very young age, talented session musician, he made a fuckload of money. Like years before you know, well before Led Zeppelin ever happened, Led Zeppelin used to band. They used to rehearse. The first few rehearsals were in his his boathouse of his house in on the Thames. You know, and Robert Plant and John Bonham were kind of teenage friends from you know poor upbringing in Birmingham. Um, John Paul Jones, I just haven't got a clue. That, that's what I'm, I don't want to know about where, where they put fish and roadies and groupies. And I just I don't. 
give a shit really mm. but i guess that's mm. like a thing of like that's what they think the market wants is the sort of sensationalism and in that way you know it's so much more interesting little richard is so much more interesting about you know the world he came from and that book spends most i think to my memory that book spends the first half at least sort of talking about the you know discussing sort of what early rock and roll was like and what the world he came from was like and you know this is so much more interesting than uh than oh yeah you know it's like i, I don't know if ozzy osborne's put out a book but i'm sure if he has there's all this stuff about him snorting ants and stuff like that he can get that from the internet yeah, <laughs> you know, but That's what was insight, Bir- is it? What was Birmingham like, and how did he fit into that world, and how did you know, like that whole thing work? And I know that's out there, and I know people have written about it, but that's the sort of thing I want is this sort of conceptualization of of stuff. Um, I think how does the you, how does hit- it function? And that's what Danny Osborne, Danny. Osborne, Dan Ozzy's book Sellout doesn't do is it doesn't context it talks a lot about the underground and the mainstream but it doesn't actually say what the underground looks like or what the mainstream looks like and it doesn't tell us anything about the networks of the underground in punk rock in the 90s and you know it just sort of places it places punk rock as this sort of insular group of people who are pissed off with the mainstream without asking questions about why that might have been or at least addressing a little bit of those questions of why that might have been it it spends the entire it spends the two three hundred pages avoiding the word capitalism which is a book about punk rock and it's selling out to mainstream stuff is crazy you've you've hit on something which is exactly what I want from books. I want the context. I want, I've read a couple of books recently. One of them's the Time Traveler's Guide to Medieval Britain and the Time Traveler's Guide to Elizabethan Britain. And I absolutely love them because they, they, they say in very clear terms, if you were on a street on 13th century Britain, this is what it would look like. This is what it would smell like. This is what, this is how people would talk. This would be the general feeling of, of society at the time. That's really cool. And I want that from music biographies, yeah. especially from, from things like Little Richard. And I mean, the, the Britpop thing, which Luke Haynes uh, say, he'd probably come and give me a, a rap on the knuckles for using that phrase. I was there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know what it's like, but I don't know what some of the stories are behind the bands he he rips into a lot of say a lot of other bands but one of the things that really shocked me is his reveal of of how how druggy the whole scene was i wasn't of an age really to sort of experience but he describes elastica as being formed by a welsh woman who turned up with london with enough heroin for the whole scene and she i know exactly who he's talking about but no one else would dare say that sort of I, thing. I, I, I'm uh, I, someone I know was a drummer in a band that got signed. I can't remember Polydor. I think they got signed to, and um, this was in the late nineties, early two thousands, maybe. I can't remember when it was. A uh, great album. I'm not going to say who it was because I don't want to talk um, to name names, but. Yeah, he basically said the entire the entire budget for their first album. This is during that sort of boom period. Um, 
it just went into the veins of the guitarist and singer. Oh man. Right. Uh, let, let's move on because we've, we've only got 20 minutes left and we've only played two songs. <laughs> so we need, to play, we need to play the next one. Do you want to introduce your next track? Yeah, this is Jane County, Max's Kansas City. Good, I know the name. Ne- never heard her sing. Never heard no, the band. No, never really listened to her either. But I, the out, the her her autobiography was reprinted. Autobiography by Jane County with Rupert Smith was from '95. Was reprinted fairly recently. This is going to sell me 2021, and it had a and and uh, this is book. It's, it's a great great name of a book called Man Enough to Be a Woman. And she is basically the first, as far as I understand, she was the first openly transsexual rock and roll star. And I can't, I can't think of any others. I think of people who played with it, like Little Richard. Yeah. yeah. But no, no one who was that, that sort of hundred percent commitment. I don't, don't really know, know how else to put it. Yeah, and she came from again. She came from the South, which is something about the South creating really interesting characters through its acts of repression of those characters. Um, and uh, she was in Warhol films and Warhol plays, Andy Warhol, that is. And she was part of the Stonewall riots. She was part of the early punk scene that emerged out of that sort of art punk stuff she knew the velvet underground and knew um what's he called uh who's the main guy in velvet underground what was he called again lou reed lou reed my mind oh john cale uh no lou reed and it's you know there's a lot of and you can hear it in her voice the way that she's talking about um she the way she's singing is very lou reed inflected um i think and um it's a really, it's, you know, it's a name-dropping book, but it's also a really, really interesting book because it's about someone who was so alternative to the mainstream and could had had no ability and no interest in uh, suppressing it and found, in fact, a sort of a scene, and she kept changing scenes, but found in these different scenes that, uh, you know... Um, became a very important part of uh, modern day rock and roll law. And um, it's really interesting to sort of read a book from someone who was inside it. Again, it's a bit thin sometimes, but it's also a bit shocking. It's pretty shocking because every single, like every single person in the book who she cares for gets raped. Oh, but, fucking hell, really? Yeah. But the rape is like this person got getting got into this situation, they got raped, and then she moves on very quickly. There's no sort of like uh, it's a fact of life rather than something that and it's a fact that they had to deal with rather than something that had 
necessarily something that they sit down and sort of talk about for for a long time. And it's incredibly shocking from a modern, you know, a modern disposition to sort of read about these people who were abused in so horrendously, and they just were they just had to get off, get on, and go back to the party sometimes. That's shit, but it's important these things are these things are are documented, yeah, and not just swept under the carpet. That that is how how some parts of positive change happen. But I I can really hear it actually in the music. I can hear a lot of the the early seventies yeah. proto punk. I hate that phrase, but you can hear New York Dolls. You can hear yeah. Well, literally, yeah. you hear the name New York Dolls. Oh yeah, <laughs> actually in there, isn't it? Right, cool. We're we're gonna have to nip along here, so yeah, I'm go gonna move go on to to my next choice. And do you know, I I always like to play it before telling it because I I there's so many bands that that I read about and and listen to that are so out of context for anything that you and I talk about together. So I'm gonna play it. And I, I tried this out on Emma or my wife this morning. I said, right, what's this? And I played it the same click. She got it in about two seconds. Tiny, tiny bit of vocal there. No idea, but they get points for attempting counterpoint. I like that. Ah, that's the Charlatans. Ah, okay. Never so listened third, to them. Th- third album. I think third album's a good starting point, actually, because first album, they are fey, bouncy, Manchester pop, like bloody everyone was at the time. Second album, they got... Uh, their guitarist left after the first album. They kind of booted him out. Um Second album got a new guitarist who was really innovative, really interesting, just the way he played. And they had the albums produced by Flood. Mm-hmm. So they went from like bouncy pop to second album is just, it's a bit much, if I'm honest. They, they Tim Burgess, uh, the singer, and I'm talking about his book called Telling Stories. He said, you know, they were pressing every button they could. They, they had a load of money and just, just went nuts, basically. But the third album, they'd sort of, they, they they did have some difficult times as a band. They they've had deaths, imprisonments, all sorts of all sorts of stuff, which was very much in the news at the time. Third album, they just sort of strip everything back down, and it sounds like they've been lo- listening to a lot of late seven um, early seventies era Rolling Stones. But it's just a good album. It's just really good. It's just a smart album. But the I've always liked Tim Burgess. He he's always come across as the nice guy. Of, of music and several things shocked me about the book the one thing is just how big they were i loved them but i didn't think anyone else at the time had even heard of them they they sold millions of albums they were the charlatans were proper massive you know selling more than madonna in the uk some and you know, just crazy big which i just didn't know it was, it was a complete surprise to me but again <laughs> the drug thing i was quite shocked with the revelations because it's an autobiography that that he was he was a crackhead Genuinely, uh, like what? Really? Are you like? Well, are you sure? Oh, Same thing in... with Brett Anderson in Suede. That one, not so much of a surprise. Tim Burgess, I was like, really. Another book I want to go back and reread. It's not the greatest book, rock and roll book ever, but it's a pretty good one. Which is, um, 
It is George Clinton's book, uh, Brother... You know when you turn around like that, we can't hear you so well. Oh, okay, hold on. Oh, <laughs> he's actually wheeled himself across the room now. There's a big bookcase behind it's him. A, it, 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 it's a great title of the book. It's Brothers Be Yo Like George Ain't That Funkin' Kind of Hard in You. <laughs> okay, that is a hell of a title. I think. Can you can you uh, send me a WhatsApp with the titles of these books? That I can yeah. add them to the show notes, please. Yeah. but I, I didn't. I haven't. I need to. Um, uh, I need to reread it because I, I think I sort of read it a bit too quickly to digest what he was saying about a lot of stuff. But it's a good book for like contextualizing Parliament and Funkadelic. But he also it was like, oh, he his friendship with Sly Stone is all based on crack abuse. <laughs> and, but they were he's basically he was a ba- barely functioning, but he was a pretty functioning crackhead since the late seventies until in the last few years, and then he got clean, oh, wow. and all of a sudden he wrote this book. He's got he's trying to get his his house in order because the problem with Parliament Funkadelic is like, and this starts with punk, you know, the very way they started is just there's legal rights of who owns the album stuff all over the shop, and he got pretty fucked over pretty badly. Um, anyway, anyway, that's just like drug abuse and, and musicians, interesting. Weird, the, the, sad. The thing, yeah, the, the thing. It did shock me with the with the charlatans with Tim Burgess's book. But but you know th- this is drugs. It's not something. It's not a subject I I have any deep. You know I don't have any experience and, and don't really have any understanding, other than conversations I've, I've had with with friends basically. But the thing I like about the way Tim Burgess handles it is his his writing style. Is I don't want to say amateur. It's nice, but it's not. It's not. He's not a writer. He'd probably no. admit that. Brett, Brett Anderson's book, I know I didn't choose it, but Brett Anderson's book from Suede, he writes like he thinks he's a good writer, but it comes across as, as six-form writing. Whereas Tim Burgess is just, it's almost like he's just being nice. He's just sitting down with you in the pub explaining it. And it it does end well. <laughs> it does. It, it, he doesn't sort of dwell on the redemption. He's just, again, quite honest about the whole thing, but it, it does, it ends well. And he's threatening, threatening. He says he's going to write another book because obviously this book only goes up to a certain date and, and he's still active and he's still doing loads of cool stuff. But the title for his second book, I absolutely love. It's going to be called Tim Buck Two. No, sorry, Tim Book Two. <laughs> which I thought, it works better with a northern accent because he's, uh, he's from Northwich. Yes. But, yeah, I like that. Nice. Right, we better move on to the next one. Do you want to introduce it? Uh, yeah, uh, this is Minutemen with uh, My Heart and the Real World. So my soul collapsed into a big guild Some big thunder law forces me to eat shit. And if I was a word, could my letters number 100? More likely question gutter on one syllable Anglo-Saxon. Every time I hear the Minutemen, they sound completely different to the time before I heard the Minutemen. <laughs> They're like the <laughs> fall, always the same, always different, as John yeah. Hill said. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good summing up of this. They change incredibly. Uh, they change incredibly, but this is a book. It's not really biography, but it's a biography of an album 
which is uh, oh. from the series 33 and a third. I love those books. Bloomsbury. Yeah, some of them are mm. great. Some of them are uh, not so great. But this one's... Have you read the replacements one? No, I've read the replacements uh, biography, which is oh, great, Oh, shit, actually. why didn't I include that? Because you I haven't come... read it. Oh, yeah, I have. I've read... Um... The 500-page one. The no, I've, one. I've, it's, it's not by them. It's by one of the... By the roadie, Lemon Jam. Oh, yeah. No, no. The one I was thinking of was another one, which is like a, a history of the replacements, which is a fantastic book. And it's just not very, uh, I don't know. It was too forensic. It was too, it was, it was too forensic in a way. It was even, it was too, um, like, you, you know, goes into every single song on the album. But this, like, it, it would basically be with this for every tour and every album and, you know, it's a bit exhausting. But it's a really good book. Um, but this is basically a biography of, um, yeah, a Double Nickels and the Dime, uh, which is sort of the game changer album by the Minutemen. And it's just a really, it's just like, it's a really nice piece piece of short history writing in a way. Um, he really goes into it and he really goes those, into those the books. book. Those books are great, and they've they've got some brilliant writers on that series. Yeah, I absolutely, thoroughly recommend it. We're going to have to really nip along here, I'm afraid, Sam. So we're going to move on to my next choice. Um, oh, good God, I'm not. I'm. I wouldn't guess this. It doesn't change much, to be honest. <laughs> I, I'm I'm going to have to explain the context to this. So, if I tell you that song is called "An Evening of Contemporary Sitar Music" and it was recorded live, that, yeah. do you want to even have a guess about at the band? No. It's Spaceman Three, which I realised might oh, not be you've that. You've told me about the book, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the book is. Uh, Spaceman 3 were a band, one of those bands that should have been like much more, much bigger than they were, but they're a bit like, they say about Velvet Underground, only a thousand copies of the first album sold, but those thousand people formed a band. I think Spaceman 3, they very much informed a lot of the shoegaze and, and 90s to mid 90s and very much now influence a lot of bands. The band split in two very acrimoniously so acrimoniously that the last spaceman 3 album side one of the album is by one of the guitarists with with a different band and side b is by the other guitarist and singer with a completely almost completely different band they were things were that bad but the 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 two guys that formed spaceman 3 the other two main things one of them went on to form spiritualized who ended up being a, a massive are a massive deal and wrote a fantastic album called ladies and gentlemen we are floating in space and the other guy went on to be um hollywood well hollywood producer and soundtrack guy and and music producer but the book is written by the bassist a guy called will carruthers and it's called playing the bass with three left hands because they i mean some bands the drug influence is clearly a big part of it and you know Spaceman 3, there are songs 
I think they've got an album called Music to Do Drugs By or something like that. It, it's 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 quite obvious, but I was quite shocked at how young the bassist was when he was started. He was shooting up speed, which just as little I know about drugs, you don't want to do that. Um, but I, I chose that track because it's a live recording they did in the entrance to an art center somewhere. And they were reasonably popular at the time, but it was billed as an evening of contemporary sitar music. And in the book, which is hilarious and not that shocking, but just a brilliant read, Will Carruthers talks about that gig. And it's a really famous gig and that album's really famous. And you can hear sort of it influenced things like Godspeed You Black Emperor, just loads of stuff. But he talks about they were very, very stoned. Um, and he sat down on his amp and played the whole set. And it was only at the end when the implore started, he realized he hadn't switched his amp on. And I love the fact that, <laughs> that it's, they still released it. There's no bass on it. He plays the whole way through that. There's no bass on it at all. But it, it, the book is also quite a good warning of just how badly fucked over you can get, be how fucked over you can be by poor record deals. Because he was playing on albums and getting nothing, nothing at all, absolutely nothing. He's literally living in a hedge for six months at one point, just a hedge, not like even a caravan or like just a hedge. Uh, well worth a read, but I'll probably probably uh, leave that there unless there's anything you want to question or add to that. Uh, did it make you think differently about their music? That's a good question you asked earlier. It did. It made me appreciate them more, if anything, mm. because Spaceman 3 are one of those bands that people mention as an influence and I never really got. But the way Will Crothers writes does contextualize it completely and utterly. It, it was essentially, well, two rich kids and, and Will Crothers, who was very much not a rich kid. And it didn't make me feel any better about the two other guys in the band it made me feel better about the music and, and what they were trying to do and the exploration they're on and how difficult that journey was when nobody was doing anything like that mm. at all. So yeah, it did make me appreciate the music more and I, I, I listened to it more. Even I've even listened to the whole of an evening of contemporary sitar music, which is about 45 minutes long and has no bass on it. Right. Uh, sh should we move on to your last track? Sure. Yes. Is, track I was I'm just going to play this one because I was really pleased to see it Yeah, I know that wasn't an accident. I love love that so much. I actually went through to the other room at home and played the whole thing start to finish because oh, I, I, I the satisfaction album. of hearing it all. So, who was that? That was the slits with typical girls, uh, which they were anything but. And um, the book is called. Uh, I have to read it because it's quite a crazy title. Viv Albertine was a guitarist, and she wrote a book called. Uh, clothes, 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 music, 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 boys, boys, boys. And mm. it is probably 
to my mind, what I've read, the best book about the early punk rock scene um, in the UK that I've read. She was uh, sort of, you know, both in the centre of it as well as to the side of it. And she writes very evocatively. It's a brilliant book. I'd say of all the books I've sort of chosen, it's the best written book. And, cool stuff. Uh, and also made me realize it did change my idea of how the slits work. It made me realize the reason why the slits first album cut is so good is because you have this absolute madness on top of Budgie's drumming. Budgie, the good drummer oh, from shit, Budgie. Yeah. Budgie, he had his the new drummer stuff? from his, no, but he's, he's, he's doing one, new stuff. That's really good. The drummer from Susie and the Banshees and he's rock solid doing exactly everything pitch, you know, perfect on that album. Whereas this is sort of like rollicking madness on the top of it. And it's genius, <laughs> rollicking genius madness. album. And it's a great book, um, really good book to understand the slits, not just the slits, but the entire punk rock squatty teenage um, bunch of wankers they were. I'm really looking forward to reading it. It's on my list and I've not heard anyone say anything bad about it. It's, 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 I'm, yeah, I'm going to read it. Look forward to it. Really do. I love that song, and, and that was the aspect of of sort of seventies punk that I do like. I like the I like the the less polished side. Well, of it, it's the it? art punk side, isn't it? It's what's mm. been called. Get it gets sort of sidelined as art punk, but it was. I think it's this realization. This friend who put me onto the um, Little Richard book always. But I, I, my, my realization of early punk rock, the best stuff was basically middle class kids working together with working class kids and that's yeah. what the clash are that's what the slits were that's what um that's what space man three were that we just mentioned yeah and because you have these people with an art house sort of perspective and then you have these people with who want to do great art and then you have these people who just want to get to the fucking point and rock and it's just really got a good medium just got to mention um yeah budgie's new band is it's um him so budgie it's Lol Tolhurst from The Cure. Oh, yeah. And it's produced by Jackknife Lee. And there's a single out at the moment that's got James Murphy from LCD Sound System singing on it. It's just great. It's bloody great. They, they uh, Lol Tolhurst and, and uh, Budgie were on Six Music being interviewed, and they just sound like they're having a hoot. <laughs> just I, I like I like it when people that clearly got nothing to prove. I mean, good God, you've been in the cure for like forty years. <laughs> you're not you've not got to convince anyone you you know what you're doing and that you're popular. So the idea that they're just chucking together an album because they want to, just kind of for the fuck of it, I really like. It's worth it's worth looking up. Right, next choice is my. So that was your last choice, and you finished yeah. with the, the best written book. I'm going to finish with what I think is the best written book, and it's written by Louise Wenner from Sleeper. I was never the biggest Sleeper fan. I used to sort of enjoy them. I've but, heard about the book though. Yeah, exactly. The the book absolutely has made me change the way I feel about the band, although I still don't listen to them. So I'm going to play the track. Um, here we go.
So that that was statuesque by Sleeper. Out of the four books I've chosen, Bad Vibes made me sort of like Luke Haynes in a cheeky chappy kind of way. Telling stories kind of made me fall in love a little bit with Tim Burgess because he's he's just like a big cuddly teddy bear the way he talks. Three Left Hands, playing bass with Three Left Hand by Will Carruthers kind of made me think, well, sort of feel sorry for the guy, basically, because he still hasn't made any money. The Just for One Day, which is a book by Louise Wenner, sort of I've got a bit of a boy crush on her now. <laughs> the way she writes, it's wonderful. She's a she's a brilliant, brilliant writer. That genuinely is her talent. And she's written another couple of books, I think. One of them's fiction, which I need to read. Because the the context that she gives around the early Britpop scene and her background and how she felt about it and how they how she navigated through it as a woman at a time where that fucking awful lad culture was very much in play is brilliant and she's so eloquent and fun and she shits on blur from a great height but not not for sensationalism reasons just as a part of a bigger story of of how how women in music were treated at the time and some of it i found quite shocking but not surprising but still shit things like oh you know you're if you're going to wear that T-shirt, your nipples ought to be hard for photo shit. Just shit, shit stuff. But the way she tells it is not in an apologetic way, not in a certainly not in a angry way. Just in a sort of she just lays it out there, and it's really hard to explain unless you read the book. And I imagine there's there's similar things in the in the um the the slits book. Crap, I've forgotten her name. What's her name? Oh, Viv Albertine. Viv Albertine, yeah. I, th- I think the the attitude, the sort of from what I've heard of the Viv Albertine book, similar attitude. In just, but out of all of them, it's the best written book. It's better than some fiction I've 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 read, and I read difficult things like three three book series by Chinese sci fi writers. <laughs> what hits me about your list and my list is I think the most interesting books are the particularly the autobiographical side of those written by the people who aren't in the spotlight um, as much as those, well, maybe sometimes in the spotlight, but certainly those who maybe didn't do as well as other people did in their further careers. Because I've heard the, the, what's he called? The guy, the bassist from the specials. I heard his book is great as well. You've absolutely, you've, you've captured something there. Because they're the people who didn't have twenty years of everyone telling them that they're great. Yeah, yeah. And I think that makes it a far more interesting book. Yeah, and also you know, like they also have, they've also because they're writing it in a letter, they 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 have to, they've done something else since as well. It's not just been their life. They understand that it's not not everything, or maybe they Absolutely. understand. Or they maybe they or maybe in some cases they sort of really miss and they think it was ever, everything, but they can't bring themselves to go to detail. I don't want to give away kind of the meat of Louise Wenner's book, but oh, for one thing, despite having three platinum albums, they didn't make a penny because they had the shittest record deal ever. But she she had a long career in education afterwards, so she's not. She's not looking back on it as the glory days at all, which I think also makes it really interesting. She's she sort of comes from a place of gratitude and bewilderment, mm. <laughs> basically. That sort of sums up kind of a lot of her feelings on it. But 
very engaging. I'll, I'll read it again. It'll be one of those books I come back to. Um, we are well over time here, Sam. And this I think is we, might have we to actually do... want to read stuff again. Actually. I think we're going to have to do this again with, with another eight books because there's there's a lot there's a lot more here. Before we go, we have got some correspondence. <gasps> what is the correspondence? Yeah. Real one. Well, correspondence. Uh, well, the first one I'm going to call correspondence, but it was actually a conversation I had at band practice with with Dom, the drummer of my band, and we talked about the secret albums. And he pointed out secret album tracks he pointed out one method of finding secret album tracks i'd completely forgotten about and that's putting the cd in pressing play and then immediately pressing rewind and sometimes you could find a track before the first track like in Uh. negative figures i'd completely forgotten that so dom you're a star and well done for pointing out something really obvious that me and sam managed to talk for an hour about without without actually bringing up i don't think i knew about that Oh, there's something for you to look at, look up. I do remember it. My, I'm going to go to my CD rack now afterwards. Just put every CD in and just rewind <laughs> it. Yeah, I was, I was like, shit, completely forgot that. And we mentioned somebody, the next, the next bit of correspondence, which was a message that I got. We mentioned somebody called Stuart Bowditch in the last episode, and I think I've mentioned him before. Is a friend of mine who, who I hope to get on on the show for. In fact, I have got. He is booked in to do an episode with me. And he pointed out that I was saying I don't understand why bands like Pink Floyd did an album that could just go on forever. You know, the end of the last track perfectly matching the beginning of the first track. And he said eight tracks. He said eight tracks, cartridges would just keep going and going if you left them. So that told me, in a nice way, God, that, like, that, that'll that learn me. Not not like that. No, he just said, no, that, that was a thing. And I was like, so, well, thank you very much, Stuart. So... There's two bits of correspondence. We need more correspondence. Just there was email. also there was also something about. Uh, I swear, some people have done this thing where they've made an infinite loop at the end of their album. Oh yeah, yeah. It, the um, Beatles did it on one album, didn't they? Oh no, it might have been Pink Floyd with the <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is. It's like geese or something. Right. So and you're never entirely sure if the vinyl's broken or if it's intentional. Oh, man, we we could do another episode on on things that are broken. My copy of the first Stone Roses album's got a skip in the middle of the the first song, on the second side, which is a, a rehash of um, "Are You Going to Scarborough Fair?" But it's, a song <laughs> about, it's a song about shooting the Queen, um, and I can't hear that song without expecting to hear that skip. <laughs> it's it's really <laughs> it's, it's so ingrained. We have run massively over. So, listeners, thank you ever so much for sticking with us. Um, I hope you found this entertaining. And we're going to wrap it up there. Please do subscribe and like and look us up on YouTube because we're we're putting a lot of work into this. Do you think they believe that? And the subscriber numbers are going up quite nicely. But we're it would very be professional. Good to... We're very professional. Yeah, yeah. We, we are. We are very I professional. Would, I would like to make a recommendation for people. If anybody wants to tell us what their their riff of the week is, that's also cool. That will make life for us a bit easier. Well, tell us what your favourite band biography books are and yeah. why. This is I'd like the idea of each one of these being being a starting point for a conversation. The ideal thing in my mind would be to do the episode that we release on the Monday, and then release a, a sort of a, a a right to reply type thing on the Wednesday, just going through the correspondence because I think that 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 we want this to be a community thing. It is music is a a social habit. 
Well, I, I would like people to tell us their riff of the week, uh, so we can then spend the time um, telling them that they're wrong. <laughs> what? <laughs> right, let's end on that note. Thank you very much, Sam. I love you dearly. And I thank you very much for listening, everyone. I'm going to say goodbye, Sam. Would you like to say goodbye? <laughs>